Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. My next guest is Dr. Matt Miller, who has studied all aspects of pacing for mountain bike racing, including how to measure and improve a rider's descending and braking capabilities. Dr. Miller has lived in New Zealand since 2014, where he worked as a lecturer and pursued his PhD. This allowed him to focus on being a top mountain bike scientist, while at the same time researching and inventing a braking power meter for mountain bikes called the Brake Ace. I hope you enjoy the show and learn a thing or two about how to get fitter, go faster for mountain biking, even though that means coasting a whole bunch more. Dr. Matt Miller, thank you so much for joining me today all the way from New Zealand. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Dirk. This is pretty exciting. Uh, I don't sense um, a- an accent there quite yet. How long have you been there? <laughs> well, if you ask my parents, I have a New Zealand accent. But uh, oh. I'm from the States, and I've been in New Zealand uh, about eight years now. Yeah. Wow. Super. And, you know, you've got an extensive background. Tell us more about, you know, your, your career and history uh, within sports science, and then how that led you into mountain bike coaching. Yeah, well, I guess I grew up around bikes. So my family owned a bike shop that my grandfather started. So I guess I'm technically third generation bike shop guy. And none of my, the rest of my family didn't really get into bikes, but I got into bikes pretty hard and I just loved it. So I started racing when I was about 16 and I was working in the shop and traveling around the mid Atlantic region, doing all the races and I got pretty good, pretty quick. And then I just kind of like hit this plateau, like somewhere around like the semi pros where I just didn't get any better. I was trying to figure out how can I get better? And I obviously knew nothing. I had no idea what I was doing and I read some of the books and basically I took, um, you know, I read the mountain bikers training Bible and I took the things that I wanted to hear out of it. And basically Uh that meant, uh, go hard and ride long. And I did that all the time. And, you know, looking back, I realized that I only took the parts I wanted to hear and I only did Uh the parts I wanted. And that's what kind of led to my plateau. But this kind of overtraining syndrome I developed and plateau, it really spurred me on to want to study exercise science. So I was kind of a late bloomer. I went and did my undergrad degree when I was about 24 and I just loved it. I found I was really good at kind of understanding the sports science, having been through all of it. And um, I really wanted to be able to apply that in the lab and do research. So I did my master's and I wanted to do a PhD and I got an opportunity to do a PhD kind of in mountain biking with a group here in New Zealand. And that's what brought me here. And that's where we are today. Wow. You found your calling all the way on the other side of the world. So tell us more about that research with the PhD in the mountain biking. Yeah, well, the whole thing that I really wanted to do is I wanted to be able to model mountain biking performance. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had seen some of the models that they were using in road cycling And if we know your aerobic ability and we know your anaerobic capacity, then we can basically, in a road race, 
determine when you're going to blow up or at least get close. So I wanted to be able to do that with mountain biking because I had done some research into FTP and um, some other power metrics during my undergrad and graduate degree. And I, I thought we could do it. I thought we could model the perfect mountain bike race. So you go this hard on this climb and, you know, we'll, we'll get you there as quick as possible. Uh-huh. So we started doing some research into that. And part of that was studying descending performance. And we're looking at pacing strategies and things like that down the hills. And when you go down a hill on a mountain bike, you're still breathing hard and your heart rate stays up. Right. Um, but we noticed that there's this huge confounding factor in mountain, mountain biking, which is braking, because there were huge differences in how people went down the hills. So right. there's no way to be able to model it without looking at braking. And then we just went down this huge tangent, and I basically have focused my life on understanding braking since then. Wow. Okay, we'll get to that. But you also published a research study in the Journal of Cycling Science. And that was the validity of using functional threshold power and inter- intermittent power to predict cross-country mountain bike race outcome. So that sounds to me like it was measuring primarily the uphill yeah. or flat sections. And this study didn't really dive into the downhill braking component of mountain biking. Is that is that correct? No, that, that study, oh. that was pretty cool. That was the first study I ever did. And I was an undergrad and basically I just kind of spammed all the power meter companies asking them for a bit of kit yeah. so I could go around and measure everyone's FTP. And that's what I did. Nice. So I, uh-huh. I went to uh, all my friends' houses and we did FTP tests. And I think we had like 20 people. So I was driving all over the place just doing FTP tests. And then, you know, for me, I, I didn't believe at that time, I didn't believe that FTP was that important for mountain biking. Because when I was looking at mountain biking as kind of this pseudoscientist that was just scratching the surface, I thought, well, FTP obviously doesn't mean anything because in mountain biking, you have to go hard and it's really hard. And FTP is this aerobic level. So it can't be that important for mountain biking. So we created this intermittent power test as well. I think it was 45 seconds. And the test was 20 minutes long, 45 seconds all out, (laughs) 15 second recoveries. 20 times that is a massive hard workout yeah it was brutal i think like heart rates were higher but the power wasn't that high you know right the first few are really hard just like a mountain bike race and then kind of plateaus but you know so i know i kind of developed that test based on power data from a mountain bike race and at the time i would have done that um, data collection around 2012 or 2011 Mm -hmm. and not that many people were using power meters on mountain bikes at that time. So there wasn't a lot of information. But, you know, in the end, we found that FTP could predict this race performance, because we brought everyone together, we did this cross country race, and then we tried to be able to predict performance and FTP was just amazing. So the higher your FTP, the faster you went in the race. So, you know, that was like, huge light bulb moment for me, and how I approached uh, coaching thereafter. So this intermittent power, more or less kind of paralleled, even though, intermittent power was higher than FTP, correct? Yeah, and that's probably just the way we measured it because we didn't include the zero times. Right. So they reflected each other, which therefore meant that even the, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but (laughs) a mountain bike race is a lot of hard efforts, but yet it's still at its core, this aerobic uh, test. 
Yep, 100%. Mountain biking is aerobic. So let's get that out of the way now. There, I said it. <laughs> Mountain biking is aerobic. And we suffer a lot. And a lot of that comes down to how we pace in mountain biking. But, um, you know, in this study that we did, the people that had the higher FTP also had the higher intermittent power as well. So it's just kind of was this whole big kind of went around in this circle and said what probably a lot of people knew, but I didn't really believe. And now that's published and that's one of my most read research studies. (laughs) So can we therefore also state that IP could also be the same as normalized power, NP? I mean, it's, it's almost the same kind of definition um, you know, normalized power being higher than functional threshold power in a very, you know, a, a race with a lot of variation to it, the variability index, that yeah. normalized power will be higher. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I never thought of it that way, but yeah, it's, it's very similar. Yeah. So what's the differences between road racing and mountain bike racing then? Um, there, there are actually a lot of differences and, um, one of the things with um, with mountain biking is that we, when we go hard, we go hard. And when we go easy, we're not really doing a whole lot except kind of coasting and bouncing around. Um, in road cycling, you need to do really sustained efforts. And yes, we get that in mountain biking depending on the terrain. But if you kind of race where I grew up on the eastern USA, uh-huh. the trails are hard and punchy. So you need to go really hard for a short period of time and then you get a really short rest. So it's kind of, it's a little bit like crit racing, but then you need to look at how the power is produced. And in mountain biking, we always usually are producing power at a really low cadence. So the torque is really high. Yeah. And that would definitely, so there's some similar similarities to a crit, but then the difference is that, is that torque and that lower RPM is different than, um, you know, a criterium. Um, so, so, you know, and I think of that as, um, FRC, you know, functional reserve capacity is a metric in, in WKO. And it's really, you know, you can equate it to your matches. And I read somewhere you wrote, we, you know, in mountain biking, you do a lot of hard efforts and the person that has the more efforts in them wins. (laughs) Yes. And that's, that's the match, you know, concept, the FRC and that, the amount of energy you have above threshold is really what that's getting at, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think the important thing to remember here is like, yeah, we need to go over threshold, but the faster we can recover, the better. So if we expend and use all of our matches, um, it's going to be really difficult for us to recover. And then we're pretty much relegated to riding at FTP. So then we're going slow up these really hard parts of the course. So we don't want to burn all our matches too soon. And in my experience working with mountain bikers, this is one of the most common issues is just burning all their matches basically at the start. Right. Right. Everybody thinks about the high end of the spectrum. I need to train the high end, high end, high end, you know, right. Um, But then that is basically sort of like pulling the rug out from under them because they need that capability to recover between efforts, which comes down to that aerobic capability, that Absolutely. aerobic efficiency, that aerobic fitness. So, and that's so opposite of going all out hundred percent, you know? So how do we manage these two, you know, uh, th- theories 
to create the best racer possible where you have to do aerobic training. Um, you know, is this the 80, 20, you know, I'd love to know your thoughts on that. You know, the yeah. 80%, you know, aerobic and 20% high intensity. Um, tell, you know, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah. So I've, I've basically gone full circle in how I approach helping mountain bikers improve. So when I was racing, it was really a big focus on VO2 max kind of intervals. And that's what me and my buddies would do all the time because that's kind of how our trails were. And we thought that's what would really help us. And obviously, like you do a lot of them and you get really, really tired really quickly. So if you kind of do that across a year, it explains why I was chronically fatigued. And it kind of took two years out from my racing career. Um, but so you kind of strip that back and then you can do really, really high intensity efforts uh, just maybe once or twice a week and then spend the rest of the time recovering. And that's cool because you can feel pretty good and you can then go race well because you're fresh, but you kind of miss bringing up your aerobic ability, right? right. So at, after a certain amount of time, you kind of plateau there and you don't make any, any gains. So because mountain biking is really aerobic, like the ability to be able to recover in between those efforts, those hard efforts is really dependent on aerobic ability. So if we continue to push that aerobic ability up, we can not only do more of these hard efforts, but we can recover more quickly in between them. So this means we could you know, potentially go downhills faster as well. I coached athletes kind of that way where we did a low volume, high intensity training. And that works for some athletes kind of depending on how much time they have available. But I end up working with a lot of athletes that have a lot of time available to train. And if we're uh -huh. constantly thrashing them with intervals, they're, they're just not going to improve. Now what I do is I really do focus a lot on aerobic ability with mountain bikers of all types. So this is um, enduro, downhill, uh, cross country. Aerobic ability is the primary thing that we try and develop. And this is also because every time we're on the trails, there is a lot of anaerobic efforts. So we need to spend time riding on the trails to work on our skills. But then if we're working on our fitness, we really want to be able to improve that aerobic ability without kind of thrashing ourselves and doing a lot of damage. Right. So I think we can all find great examples of really hard intervals out there. But what is a great example of an aerobic training day? If it's so it's not a recovery day, we're not doing 60 minutes at, you know, 100 watts, you know, what what would you consider a really good quality aerobic training session? Well, uh, I have two kind of favorite ones and one would be like a two by twenties. So two by twenties at just below FTP, you okay. know, somewhere in zone four. And that's a real good bang for your buck. And you can get that kind of workout done in, in about an hour. If you're on mm -hmm. the trainer, you could do it even quicker, but there's a really good stimulus. And then just the last few years, I've been really focusing a lot on, um, prescribing tempo workouts. So zone mm -hmm. three for extended period of time. And those, those are really good. Nice. And what about like aerobic threshold that's even like lower than zone three, you know, for this fat kind of, you know, burning or the recycling, the lactate, um, do you, do you prescribe any kind of longer, you know, aerobic zone two type, type, um, days? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a bummer that not everyone has time to do these kind of rides because, right. you know, we're, we're talking, you got to go long, but there's so many benefits to be had there where you're not 
really like generating acidity in the muscle or uh, generating any lactate due to high workload. Um, it's really good bang for buck for developing mitochondria, which mm-hmm. everyone knows is the powerhouse of our cells. And that, that really helps us to be able to use fat as fuel and uh, to be really efficient at using oxygen to create high power output just using oxygen, not having to tap into our anaerobic capacity. Yeah, it reminds me of a conversation I'm trying. I have with a, a a high school kid that lives next to me. He's really into enduro, but he does not want to do any endurance training. He doesn't want to go climbing <laughs> with the cross country team. He doesn't want to wear any lycra. He doesn't want to be anywhere near lycra. Um, but then I read on on your blog how you've you know trained what I think an enduro national champion and in Australia and they won plenty of cross country races along the way, but their primary focus was enduro. So the importance of that aerobic capability is still so important. And for those who don't know, and, and you might explain what, you know, exactly an enduro is. Yeah. So, uh, oh man, I, I love enduro because I've kind of seen it from, from the start and I was an XC guy and I wasn't the best. So my way of getting, faster at XC was to kind of just destroy everyone in the downhills. And I got really good at riding down like cross country style downhills. I guess what enduro really is, is you need, you spend quite a long time in the saddle, which just basically screams endurance training. You spend all day in the saddle. So you get to the top of the hill and that's not timed so that you kind of cruise with your friends and you hang out and have a good time. And then you get to the top of the hill and then you race down. So the downhill part's timed and then you add up the time for every single stage. So when I say endurance ability is important for enduro, most people are thinking, okay, well, yeah, you're out there for a long day. That kind of makes sense. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't. But then when I tell them, actually, your endurance capacity, uh, your endurance level is really important for being able to recover within a three-minute enduro stage or a four-minute enduro stage. The more aerobically fit you are, the faster you can recover between these hard efforts down the hill. So then their ears kind of perk up and they think, okay, maybe I can kind of work on this aerobic capacity thing. Yeah, and and so this leads me into, you have some tips for mountain bikers, and I'm going to kind of jump to the the last one here. Coast more. So, you know, this, so if we're talking to cross country racers and we're doing a 90 minute race, it's like, oh yeah, that's right. Coasting could really help me. But, you know, how do you actually like incorporate that? How do, how do you work on that? And, and, you know, that would make so much sense, but how do I actually do that? And when, what bits and how do I improve my skills? Yeah, cool. That's a good question. Okay, so um, this is this is a power meter podcast, right? <laughs> and, well, uh, <laughs> you know, not all power. I'm assuming a lot of listeners don't have power meters, so I want the concepts to come through. If you don't own a power meter, that's just fine. Yeah. Um, but the concepts are what you should really gravitate towards um, and understand that, you know, power meter can actually help you measure what we're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, that is absolutely the point. Um, the, the power meter can definitely help here. And I'm a huge proponent for power meters on mountain bikes. But um, to, you know, to get across a road cycling time trial or get across a course in Zwift, the highest power wins. 
you know, basically right. you have a higher power to wait and you're going to go faster and you know, whoever does that wins in mountain biking. Okay. Well, we look at lap by lap. Do I have a higher power output? Okay. Maybe, maybe not, but the, the ability to, to be first across a uh, cross country race or first um, across an enduro course or whatever downhill, having the highest power output isn't always indicative of being the fastest right? Because there's so right. many other things going on. So we can look at power output uphills and that's really important. And then what we really need to focus on once we get to the top of the hill is recovery because we got to do it again. And we know what that feels like when we're out doing intervals. Let's say we're doing 30 seconds on 30 seconds off. By the time we get to that fifth interval, we are totally gassed. Now, if we are adding in little tiny right. micro sprints in between within our recovery, we already know right. what's going to happen. And that on that fifth one, our power output is going to be lower, right? Because we didn't get the opportunity to recover like we should have. So the same thing goes for mountain biking when you're out on a track. You need to be able to recover as much as possible on the descents and ride as smooth as possible. And that way, bring your heart rate down you can and then you can really go hard up that next climb because that's where uh, it'll really count to make up the most time so i really encourage a lot of mountain bikers to work on their ability to just generate speed without pedaling uh, especially when they're already going fast so when we get to a downhill we're already going pretty quick so if we're adding in big pedals uh, we're just reducing our ability to recover and it takes a lot of confidence actually to go and just not pedal, right? Because we're either right. in a race or we're trying to go really fast. But when we do kind of remove the pedaling, uh, or at least train ourselves to find where we can remove pedaling, we can recover better out on the trails. Yeah, for me, the the personal experience that I get is when I hate when I drop somebody on the uphill you know, and then midway through the descent, now they're on my tail asking if I can move over. <laughs> yeah. and, and when I do move over and they come by, I, you know, they're flowing through the track, through the turns, and I might hit the brakes hard and then I have to jump out of that next turn. Whereas that person ahead of me didn't even pedal, a, you know, one one revolution. Um, and they're they're just going away from me um, even though I might have a better aerobic system um, than they do because I hence beat them on the climb, but there they are beating me on the on the downhill. And if the finish is at the bottom of the climb, then they win, right? So that's like my personal experience of hating seeing that and be like, oh, I need to improve my downhilling, you know? And so tell us more about you've got you you're you're an inventor as well. And so you really dug into this and how we can help uh, mountain bikers uh, descend better. So tell us about what you invented and, and the findings from that. Yeah, well, this all started as part of my PhD where we were like, well, we got to measure something related to braking because this power meter stuff isn't going to help us model the perfect mountain bike race. Uh, I mean, it will help us, but it's not going to tell us the right. story. So I, um, I was able to convince my supervisors to give me $3,000 in New Zealand, which isn't that much. And we invented um, this massive, ugly, disgusting looking 5kg prototype brake power meter. And <laughs> I then went on to just kind of do my whole PhD on braking in mountain biking. That was about six years ago that we started working on that project. 
And uh, I've since finished my PhD. I spent some time working at the university. And then I left in 2019, I believe, and I started a company called Breakace. So Breakace is kind of the consumer kind of break power meter that we can use. And then it also has, uh, has an app that helps you figure out where you can get faster uh, on the downhills. So it analyzes all your braking for you, and it shows you three places where you can improve. Wow. So break, uh, is it giving me a number and therefore I need to try and reproduce the same descent with a lower number output or um, tell yeah. me more about the details? Yeah, pretty much. So, you know, training peaks was a huge inspiration for this because, you know, I've been using training peaks for a really long time and I wanted to kind of do a similar thing for breaking, right? So, uh, you know, we bring in all your data and then we give you these scores that you can go and you can focus on improving them. So okay. we give you lots of scores, like how many kilojoules went into your brakes, what the temperature was in your brakes, how long huh. it took, average front and rear balance, things like all those cool things that you'd expect. Right. Then we get to the bottom and we get this cool score called the flow score. And the flow hmm. score basically takes into account the intensity, the duration, and the modulation of your brakes across the whole area you're analyzing. So what we can do then is we can use the flow score to compare me to you. And I can see where I'm breaking differently to you on the downhill. So maybe when when I pass you or something, right? You pass me on the climb right. and I pass you on the downhill. Right. We figure out where that is. So for each of us though, on the descent, when we look at it and we look at our braking, it, it picks, we might break a hundred times. And that's, that's a lot. And not every braking event's bad. But what it does is it looks at the three places that you can really focus on improving, the three places you can improve the most. And we call those your three key opportunities. So now what we have is what your braking looked like and where exactly it was and what you can improve. So then we can go back to the trail and we can try new strategies on these corners or the series of corners, whatever it is, where your key opportunities were. And that flow score then helps us track our progress. Got it. So for... The majority of newer mountain bikers that you've worked with, what's the biggest mistake they make on downhills as it as it relates to the line or braking or both? Yeah, so like it's almost like um, power is a result of fitness, right? A power meter, the power that you're able to produce is a result of fitness. And braking is in a way similar. It's like a result of your skill, right? So yeah. when we look at different levels of rider. They're all kind of breaking for different reasons. Um, so if we're looking at the beginners that I've worked with, they're breaking because they're not that confident. So what we can mm. do is like quite easily give them these tools and these skills that they can utilize to be able to be more confident on the trail. And even that right there, just they can quickly change the way that they break. Hmm. Then when we get to the higher levels and we're talking about the pros and things like that, they're they're breaking because that's the way they've always braked. And then they have these habits that we're going to try and uh, break. And sometimes just showing them what they've done is enough for them to be able to kind of take all the tools that they have built up over the years to get to the pro ranks to make a change. And they're able to do that quite easily. Hmm. So the newer you are, I mean, I, I start to think about time on road bike versus mountain bike, you know, and, you know, what's your guidance around the amount of percentage of time that you train on the mountain bike versus road? And I assume that comes down to a lot of 
you know, what, what, how much experience you have in, in your skills as a mountain biker. Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, there, I always, there's this push pull here for me as a coach. Um, because mountain bike skill is super important, but then also fitness is really important because, um, we have two engines basically on a bike and that's our legs and our brakes. Right. So um, we have, that's right. our two throttles, but, um, right. The, the problem with doing a lot of mountain biking is, and this is some of the other things that came from my research, is the, the level of vibrations experienced is, uh, it's unsafe, actually. And, um, you know, it's like been likened to like spending a day on a jackhammer, the amount <laughs> that your brain is kind of shaken from going through these bumpy trails. So when we spend a lot of time mountain biking, we start to reduce our ability to recover. So there's that push pull because we need to right. maybe work on our skills, but we also don't want to do too much damage that we can't continue working on our fitness. Right. So it's really individual. And I definitely lean towards a lot of road cycling, especially if fitness is the main limiter, which it usually is. Um, and then when we get to mountain biking, it's either just for fun or it's for skill, uh, for a skill focus. Yeah. I, the word that comes to mind is optimization. You know, you're optimizing for the fitness, hence maybe more road bike there. But then when you're recovered from the last race and, but yet you don't want to do a big interval day, it's like, okay, I, I, this is, might be a great day to optimize my skill development. So I can, I'm recovered from the race. I can get on the mountain bike and just really focus on skill development. I mean, personally, I had a, a gravel race over the weekend and it's two days later and I'm still wrecked, you know, and that was from a gravel race mm. on, you know, almost mountain bikey type type trails, but like my arms are sore, my shoulders are sore, my back is sore. So I definitely rode, you know, the road bike the last two days just to be completely smooth and just spin it out, you know, until I'm ready to go again. So definitely understand that. Um, you have two more tips here uh, for for mountain bikers. So this one I love. It says, "Don't train like a local." So we can take that <laughs> in a lot of different directions. Uh, tell us what you mean by that. Yeah. So I guess the way I mean it is, um, we all get awesome at riding our local trails, and there's a few components to that. And one is like the dirt and the like the terrain. Like we get awesome at being able to handle that. So when I was racing in Pennsylvania, I could ride Pennsylvania trails as good as anyone, right? Um, and I could do really hard efforts as good as anyone, right? Because that's what my trails demanded. So when I had to go out and ride and race in Colorado, suddenly I'm out there on like these dusty trails that are a little bit blown out in the summer. They're super fast and the climbs are huge. <laughs> so <laughs> me yeah, I know I, that. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, and you know what it's like going to like to the East coast as well, like a little bit different, like the trails are different and is a different kind of fitness that you need. So if you're constantly training on trails, like for you riding out West on big long climbs, um, you're going to get a nice aerobic development just by matter of riding on trails, right? You need to do a big right. long climb. Then right. you go out west and you need to produce really high power output for a short amount of time over, or out over east. and over. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's a little bit different. Yeah. 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 I, you know, that's that so hit home. When I was doing more mountain bike racing, 
I loved doing the short track races. We had like Wednesday night short track races mm. here. And that was so opposite of kind of my natural tendency and what I typically did. And so just ripping it out for a 35 minute short track race was just so incredibly wow. good. Also skills development, you know, yeah. um, really pushed you to the, to the limit from the start to the, to the finish. Um, so I, I get that, you know, you need to mix it up or else you're just simply going to plateau at what you're good at. And then everything else just kind of gets ignored. Um, and we're put in all kinds of different race situations, especially if you want to work your way up the ranks and you will have to travel and outside of your local geography, and there's going to be a different style of racing. Um, so, you know, and on the East coast, you have more rain, New Zealand, you have a lot of rain, <laughs> a lot of mud, a lot of, uh, wet roots, you know, and that's something we don't really get a whole lot of here in the West. And then you have another tip here, which I love, which is, um, obviously pacing. And that's, we've been talking a lot about pacing, um, here, but you know, you mentioned like not starting all out for efforts and races, um, that's sort of like definition of mountain bike racing, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, I guess. Um, you know, the power taught us a lot about this. And once we all started using power meters, we got a lot smarter and we got fitter because of it. So when we were training with just heart rate and we'd go do a two by 20s, we need to get our heart rate up into, into that zone. And we'd basically all start with a sprint. And then we need to, <laughs> to tone it down a little yeah. bit. So our heart rate didn't go into VO2 max, which is where our power was. But heart rate, there's a bit of a delay, right? So we're doing this two by 20. It takes a while for it to get up and a while for it to come down. So we were doing these two by 20s, uh, just going way too hard at the start and then way too easy at the end. So we all got pretty used to that. But then we started using power meters and I'm like, okay, well, I'll just bring it up to 300 watts and I'll hold it steady here. And that helped us to improve our aerobic ability. And suddenly our heart rate took three minutes to get up to where it was supposed to be. Right. So once we started to be able to do that with power meters, we started to be able to race and pace smarter. So mountain bikers are, um, I would say, a little, um, maybe not a little slow to catch on, but I think there's still like this tendency that we need to go all out and be suffering or it's not a real race. But this, the problem, especially in XC racing, is the start is hard, and right. it doesn't have to be. Uh, uh, that's my my personal belief because I've seen it way too many times that racers get to um, their big goal cross country race, and at the start they'll produce their best ever one minute power or something like that, and the yeah. race doesn't really they don't get the result that they really wanted. Now, we know what it's like when we're out on the road training. And we do our best ever one minute power. And we feel totally gassed after that. And we mm -hmm. basically can't continue. We just want to like pull over on the side of the road and sleep. <laughs> right. Yep. So, but we still have this, this thing in us as mountain bikers where we want to start races like that too. And we know how it feels when we do it when we're training. And to be able to continue riding as hard as we can for 90 minutes. We've, we've already burnt too many matches, and it just means that we're going slower the rest of the race. So what I like to do with athletes, especially when we're doing lap to cross-country races, is start slow and try and make your, your lap times even or even faster at the end as totally possible. So we look at right. the, the top cross-country racers, and we see, wow, they're going so fast, they're going all out. But their fastest lap times are often their second-to-last lap times. So right. they're going hard but they're not going at their all out pace. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I've definitely had times too where I have paced it better, and then I I did the uh, negative split concept and went faster nice. the last you know lap or so, and that you know I was able to pass you know like eight eight people that had passed me you know forty minutes earlier, right? Yep. So it's that it's somewhat of that that patience, you know, and mm-hmm. sometimes you just got to work on that patience, have that pacing strategy. And see if you can actually negative split a race, you know, a multi-lap type race. Negative splitting is is definitely the way to go. And you, you see that in the World Cup. You know, you see these Matthew Vanderpool and Pidcock and, you know, Nino Schurter and all those guys. You know, they're all holding back. They're in the front group. They're still holding back. But bam, they're going to throw down. You know, those last two laps are the fastest by far. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. So I think we should all try that. It takes a lot of confidence, though. You know, like uh, trying to, practicing coasting takes a lot of confidence, but being able to hold back at the start of a race takes an insane amount of confidence because yeah. we even work on it. And, you know, I still fall victim to this, even though I know for a fact that I'm faster if I start slow and yeah. I still get caught up going hard. And yeah. Yeah, it's worth a try though. I really would encourage anyone listening to just try it. Um, I think they'll go faster. Yeah, and you know, another really cool thing that I just thought of is, you know, I worked with some younger athletes on the road and we were doing the stage race and one athlete was by far, you know, doing better than others. And we started to actually look at the amount of time that they coasted, you know, leading into that final climb of the day. And the guy that did the best on the team was the guy that actually coasted the most. This is in a road race. Um, so, you know, if you have a buddy with a power meter, you have a power meter, you know, you know, get your two files, you know, pull them up together and see how you, how you compare and contrast. Um, because one person, you know, may be having faster results, but they may be the one actually coasting the most as well, which is, pretty amazing if you can figure that out you know go faster by coasting <laughs> yeah absolutely. absolutely but you know the, a lot of a lot of the answers are in the data and it helps a ton if you obviously you have a coach that would help a ton or if you know you have a buddy with data uh, to compare with that would be that's a really cool exercise to do um hey you've developed some courses for us as well for training peaks university right we should expect to see some uh some courses coming out soon tell us about about those yeah, that, that's uh, super exciting to be able to do that. I feel like uh, I've been basically training to be able to help athletes, right? And it's great to be able to help Training Peaks um, athletes and coaches just be able to understand sports science because I don't think sports science should be super uh, confusing. And a lot of, there's uh-huh. so many things that go into like the human body and the human exercising body and so many numbers and things like that. I think it should be pretty easy. So... A few years ago, me and um, my good friend who I did my PhD with, Dr. Will O'Connor, we started a podcast and the podcast went pretty good and our tagline is bringing sports science to the people. So we did the podcast and then um, we decided to make some courses and those went really well. So the sports science course that we did for Training Peaks University is about using sports science and that's... We love talking about that stuff, and it was great to be able to kind of show all this this content and this information in in a way that you can actually use it, and that that was that was really rewarding, and that that should be out soon. Yeah, awesome. So look for that, especially especially if you're a coach and um, get some um, credits towards USA Triathlon, USA Cycling licensing. 
Um, that always is a bonus. Um, what well, you didn't mention the name of the podcast that you uh, are on with Dr. Will O'Connor. Yeah, the Performance Advantage Podcast. Nice. Yeah, awesome. It's a really good one. You go into strength training and all kinds of stuff. So that's that's been really cool for me to kind of catch up on lately. Um, yeah, and how can outside of that, how can people follow you or reach you? Uh, well, uh, I do lots of writing on mtbphd.com. Okay. That's kind of my right. coaching brand. And uh, I guess with most people these days, Instagram is the place. So at mtbphd, just get in touch. And I love talking about training and racing and data and all that kind of cool stuff. So get in touch. Yeah, awesome. That was great. I'm really intrigued by the break ace. Uh, I'd probably have horrible numbers, and <laughs> but that'd be really cool to try out. Um, is that is that for sale? How's the how's that coming along? Yeah, well, um, actually, we just finished a Kickstarter campaign, so okay. um, that closed uh, last week. It was a huge effort, so we got fully funded on Kickstarter, which wow. very um, cool. Yeah, super exciting. Uh, to, to get that over the line. So we're, we've had a wired model that we've been kind of using with all the brake companies and some of the World Cup riders. And now this one is, we have 80 people that backed us on Kickstarter for a wireless brake power meter. So this is gonna be hitting the trails uh, all over and it's super exciting, super exciting. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Thanks for developing that. Thanks for all the information. Good luck to everybody out there, all the mountain bikers. Season's not over. Plenty more to go. And uh, yeah, Dr. Matt Miller, thank you so much for all the all the great advice today. Thanks, Dirk. Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. For more episodes, visit trainingpeaks.com slash podcasts. Please head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Until next time, get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge.